What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's interview is with an amazing community builder who's highly requested for this podcast, Naj Austin. Naj is the founder of Ethel's Club, a community for black professionals that she created after experiencing lots of microaggressions and racism in the co-working spaces she went to or was a member of. And it was just clear to her that these were not spaces that were built for her. The default was always whiteness. And so she created a space with the priority of making it safe and inclusive for people of color. Of course, Four months after opening her co-working space and seeing a whole lot of success, coronavirus hit, and she had to pivot the community into a virtual membership, which is now hosting thousands of members who gather three times a day for all sorts of different events around wellness and learning and education. She's one of the most thoughtful community builders I've ever spoken to and pays very close attention to the details of what makes a space safe and inclusive for the identity that you're trying to build for. You're going to love this. One of my favorite episodes by far to date. Let's dive in. Naj, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you on the show. I've been hearing your name left and right. I think you're one of the most recommended community builders that, that people are mentioning on the podcast and in the community space. So you're in high demand in, in the Masters of Community audience. That is very nice to know. Um, as someone who builds with my head down, I often kind of keep outside of that. But um, yeah, we've been up to a lot of exciting things. So it's excited to know that it's it's being recognized a little bit. Absolutely. Well, all well-deserved recognition. would love to hear your story and how you came to become a community builder and start Ethel's Club. What was your journey to this point? So I sort of fell into it. I was a user first, and I was someone who was looking for a space that I felt would center and celebrate who I was, specifically through the lens of identity. And as a 27-year-old living in Brooklyn, New York uh, in 2018, I could not find it in the specific way that I was looking for. I, I wanted a lot of things as you know, young millennials do. I wanted a space that was beautiful, that had people that I thought I could learn from that would empower me. I wanted a place to sort of flex my creative interests. I wanted a podcast studio. I wanted events. Um, I, I sort of wanted it all, including a focus on wellness and, and sort of mental health and, and exploring that process myself and wanting to talk to more folks about it. And I sort of went out in the world and looked for this, you know, thing that totally didn't exist. And as I started to talk about it to other people, they felt very similarly to the way that I did. Enough positive feedback and and sort of, oh, you should do that reactions. And, you know, I, I took a look at my life and I was at a startup that, you know, was exciting in all the ways that startups are interesting, but it wasn't necessarily compelling to me on, on a much larger scale. And, and this idea of a, of a community space was. And so I started an Instagram for, you know, what became Ethel's Club and it immediately resonated. And that was back in January of 2019. And since then, it's just been, you know, trying to play catch up to the level of interest that we've had since that time. So it started as an Instagram account or is that just your way of marketing it in the early days? Uh, did, you, I think, did you know you were going to do this space? Yes and no. It's, it's hard because uh, I think that I knew I wanted to, to do this space. I don't know if I necessarily felt that I, I would or that I even could. Um, so the community that we built from Instagram in the very beginning bolstered the idea that, one, there was some semblance of product market fit there. And two, there was a community that I had sort of fallen into of people who were looking for the same thing. So we were kind of building it in real time through Instagram and and sort of sharing what we were looking for individually. And then that moved into that much larger scale of, can we take this idea of this space and build it into a physical one? What were you doing before? I was working at a real estate startup. I've worked at three different real estate startups, all in the early stage that have raised, you know, sub $5 million in the venture capital world and learned a lot about 
you know, getting an idea off the ground, being there in that sort of iteration, early product phase. So all of that felt very natural to me. The difference here is that one, I was doing it alone. You know, there was no CEO or founder to point to if things went wrong. I was raising venture capital for the first time alone as a black woman. I was fully building something in, in, in real time that, you know, I felt I needed and, and was sort of gaining product market fit, but wasn't totally sure if the world needed it, needed it at large. So it, it definitely influenced the early parts of the company. But I think once you're building a company on your own, no amount of, of previous knowledge can kind of help you navigate that. No, you're just kind of thrown into the fire. Did you have experience building community or running a space? What, what were you doing for the real estate startups? Um, I was head of operations and growth. So not really. And, and I think that's sort of the beauty of what Ethos Club is because I wasn't looking to build community. But I think when you are able to gather people around something they feel so strongly about, it, it, it naturally happens. With our Instagram page, for example, you know, it's, it's an Instagram page. I, I wouldn't call that the, the strongest metric of community, but overnight we had people emailing me and then I'm on threads and now we're on a Slack and it sort of just happened. And the next thing I know, I'm managing all of these people who I don't totally know, but we have a shared interest yeah. in, in, in a piece that centers us and people are offering their ideas. And I have a friend who does this and I know someone who could help with, you know, the real estate part or legal. And, and again, it's sort of like I woke up one day and I had this thriving community that needed someone to kind of usher it to the next phase of, of turning into a physical space. That's amazing. Yeah, it was. Like so many community builders, it sounds like, you know, it, it found you. <laughs> Very much so. I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember, I think it was January 7th, 2019. And I thought, I think I've gone too far. You know, like, what have I done? Um, because I, I was not in any position to, well, I guess I, I thought I was not in any position to leave the company that I was at. I don't even know if I had any sort of roadmap. And then it sped up so quickly just to give you a time frame of how fast this happened. In February of, you know, a month later, a journalist from the New York Times reached out to write about it because she had heard about it from her friends. And, you know, here I am. I'm like, what is it exactly? You know, what have you, what have you heard? And then it, again, continued to snowball. And a lot of that feeling of people feeling like they um, are a part of what we're building has been incredibly important to our narrative. And it's something that I still use to guide our business because it was so strong in the beginning and it has remained so strong. Absolutely. So you said kind of like you had been to different co-working spaces and didn't feel like you belonged or, or they weren't what you were looking for. What was it that kind of went from, you know, I'm just not finding a space for me to like, actually, there's a lot of people who are, who are feeling this way. Like what, what were you able to create that you weren't finding in, in existing co-working spaces? Yeah, I, I think it was a focus on understanding the power of identity, specifically within marginalized communities and specifically within the Black community of which I identify. Um, I think we are so used to walking into spaces and knowing that there may not be other people there um, who look like us and who've sort of lived the same experiences as we have. And I think when you flip that narrative and you say, I'm creating a space that solely centers you where you are the default. There are people who've never experienced that in their entire lives. One of my first investor calls was with a gentleman who's in his 50s who was Black, and he started to tear up as he talked about what we were building because, you know, he had never experienced that. He didn't even know what that could look like, what that would feel like. So I think by, by capturing that feeling and saying, you know, we are building something for you specifically, unlike, you know, any other place that you've been to before, there's an emotional response before there's any other kind of response. And the emotional response is incredibly positive and, and powerful. Um, so when people come into the Ethel's Club, they already have something in their mind that they have kind of latched onto. And it's our job to basically power through that and make it into reality. And so when I went to these other social clubs in third spaces, I didn't feel any of that. I felt 
like I shouldn't be there. You know, I was triple questioned at the door. Am I a member? Am I, am I sure I'm a member? Can I pull out my card? If I was a guest, you know, having to, to wait there and, and then security tends to come over and wait right next to you. And so all of these moments where you feel, you know, this is just how it is. And wouldn't it be cool if, if it was not like this? And so we, we took that and we sort of just ran with it. So you, you were experiencing some pretty specific things around, you know, systemic racism showing up in co-working spaces in Brooklyn and New York. Exactly. In a variety of ways. And that's sort of how it all started, right? I would talk about this happening and a friend or a colleague who identified as a person of color or as a black person would say, oh yeah, that happens to me all the time too. And right. more stories. And then, you know, you, you sort of realize like this is the world that we live in. And it's so commonplace that we're talking about it over drinks as we're talking about everything else. And why is that the case? You know, why, why isn't there a space where we can go where we don't feel like this, where we actually feel empowered and we feel seen and, and sort of held in that manner? It's interesting because there's obviously so much conversation happening now around systemic racism and identifying where it's showing up and the impact that it's having on everything in society, especially in tech communities. And a lot of the time, it's a conversation of, you know, how do we make the existing spaces we have more equitable and more inclusive? But you just kind of like took a much bigger step and said, we're going to create a whole new space with this as the core premise. Yes, yes, that, that is what we did. And I think a lot of that came from the idea of thinking about what true intersectionality means and what the word systemic means. And when you're talking about overturning a system, saying a space is inclusive is not doing that. It's, it's really shifting an entire framework of which we have all built our lives and, and saying, I think that's wrong and I'm going to do this instead. And a lot of people, um, I believe, take the easier approach, which is just to say, you know, we're going to be inclusive and we're going to include people who are not part of the white narrative into our white narrative. And they can, you know, be happy that they are a part of it now versus what we did, which was from the very beginning, the very first day, start from a very intersectional point of, if we're creating something for all people of color and we want that to be felt in a really true and authentic manner, it needs to start now, you know, day zero. How do we make every decision feel intersectional and thoughtful in that way? And I think a lot of, you know, people who create brands, community spaces, et cetera, don't necessarily think in that manner. And then effectively what you get is a space that is white leaning with, you know, diversity sprinkled in, in whatever manner that is. Do you think it's possible for a community or a space that was established with essentially perpetuating the status quo of white supremacy to, you know, let's say they become aware of that bias and of that systemic racism that exists in their space, is it possible for them to turn that corner and have a truly inclusive space? Or does it really have to start from day one? I believe it has to start from day one. I think I have a lot of, uh, a lot of feelings around the word inclusion, typically because it means, you know, you're being included into something that was built without you in mind. And now we have to add you for whatever reason, that, that, that could be out of goodwill, right? You know, we want to be that, that, you know, really is for everyone. But I think it requires more dedication and thought than that. Adding people to the space does not necessarily make the space more diverse. Diversity is in terms of how everything is communicated, how members interact with, with one another, how rules and decisions are made. And, and is everyone a part of that narrative? And if not you know, it's, it's not truly inclusive. It's just additive. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that we are perfect at it, but I think we are better than most because it is an intentional part of our brand and our story. And it's not something we added on later. It, it's, you know, it was the first thing I wrote about in the deck before I even got to the revenue part or before I got to the real estate part was if we don't get the intersectionality 
of identities correct, none of this will work. This will fall apart. People will see through it and they won't want to join. There will be no revenue. <laughs> there will be no members. Um, so it, it was it was really important for me to make sure that we were incredibly you know vigilant about that. And it's something you know we talk about all the time. It's included in almost every meeting that we have as a team. Is you know are we still a space for everyone? And if not, why? And if not, how do we change that right now? How do you think about, I guess, like when people talk about community and inclusion or exclusion, there's kind of always an element of exclusion in communities in that, you know, you're you're creating a space specifically for a group of people who share some passion or identity or challenge or something. And so, you know, you are specific in who you're organizing for. So how do you think about making Ethel's Club and the communities you're building inclusive of everyone? while centering specific identity and and experience? So I think that we have been really transparent about how we build the company. So it allows for people to not go down the path where they're shown something and then asked to make an opinion about it, whereas we bring you in for what we are building, if that makes any sense. I don't think we are. And when I say for everyone, I guess I mean more in terms of like the, you know, D&I inclusivity language that is tossed around a lot in terms of making companies diverse or making teams diverse. I have a lot of umbrage with that. Um, I think in terms of having a focus on who your audience is, is, is completely different. And you can still do that and be intersectional. Our audience, you know, identifies as typically a person of color who, um, I mean, now that we're digital, really anywhere in the world, we have members as far as the Netherlands, but a person of color who is looking for a space where they can feel centered and celebrated, whether that's through, you know, wellness, meditation, yoga, creative workshops, uh, business workshops, et cetera, where they, again, are the default. And the example I use a lot is as a Black person, um, and I will speak to that because that's how I identify, when I'm looking something up on Google, I typically have to type the word Black in beforehand. And it, you know, happens all the time. When I'm on Pinterest, same thing. It just, it's just how I use the internet that was not made with me in mind because if that were the case, I wouldn't have mm-hmm. to type it. Um, and so what we do is we create spaces where you don't have to add that qualifier in. Mm-hmm. Um, you're able to just walk in and, and feel like whatever it it is was made for you. And I don't think every person of color is necessarily looking for that. They may already have found that in their life and in whatever way that is. We are for for those who have not, who are still seeking it, um, whether it's, again, through community uh, events, you know, even things that they want to shop and or buy. I'm looking to shop more Latinx-owned items where do I go? We want to be that place where you don't have to type in Latinx. It's just assumed. It's just right. already. And so, and so in terms of how we, we kind of, you know, build all that together, again, I think it's, it's being really intentional about it from the very beginning. We didn't think about, you know, on day a hundred, like, oh no, we don't have any Latinx items. Now we must scurry and find them. From the first day, it was, how do we make everyone feel included? You know, how do we make it so that, we have items from such an array of of how people can identify that that becomes part of our narrative from the very beginning. Right. It goes back to what you said earlier of the default. And if you're an existing community that hasn't invested in making a truly inclusive space from day one, then like whiteness is still going to be the default. And you're trying to be inclusive of other people as not, you know, basically looking at them as like, well, you're not the default and we're going to try to make you feel included in this default white space. Exactly. Versus being like, what is this space? Can this space from, you know, from the beginning be inclusive of everybody already versus inclusive later? What are some of the details and, and things that you implemented, whether it was in your physical space or in your online spaces today to communicate to people of color that they are the default in your community? Uh, We did a lot. And this was something that kept me up at night because, again, I felt if we didn't get that part right and people couldn't feel it, it would all fall flat. So we did a lot of the obvious things where the space, which is located in Brooklyn, um, is about 5,000 square feet. 
we've used a lot of items that have been created by people of color. So it's not something you'd walk in and say like, oh, is this couch, this couch looks like it was made. <laughs> but we, we wanted that to be known. So you know, right. we had a of like marketing and press and stuff like that. But it was one of those sort of like, smaller triggers for people knowing that as a member sitting on that couch, you are supporting a black owned business. It it becomes much larger than I belong to this club because it makes me feel good and much more about, I belong to this movement that is changing the lives of many people of color in a multitude of ways. And so we, that was an important part of the intersectionality and inclusive conversation um, as well. So the furniture was created by um, people of color, most of it, um, all of our art, the same thing. Um, and one of the, the interesting things that we did inside the physical space is that we filled it with mirrors because we wanted the members to literally feel seen and, and to figuratively feel seen and, and almost reflect back to them that they are the community, they are the space. Without them, it's just 5,000 square foot space with lots of beautiful furniture and art. Um, and, you know, that doesn't hit the same. And so we, we really wanted to make it much more of a, a we and us, you know, much more community focused and community in, in the larger sense versus this community that we've assembled here in this space um, and try to blow up what that means. That's amazing. I mean, the attention to detail, I think like it's something I've noticed in most of the people that I've spoken to on this podcast and, and great community builders I've spoken to, they're always so specific in those kinds of pieces of identity that show up in the community and the kind of voice they want to create and, you know, the the symbols they use and the language and everything just letting people know that this is a home where they can feel safe and that it's a space built for them. Totally. I, the, some of the, the meetings we've been in as a team going over copy, you'd probably shake your head at, but we're like, should we use the word sacred or private? <laughs> I don't shake my head at, We do that too. <laughs> One of those things where I'm like, it needs to feel right. And I don't always know what the answer is beforehand, but it's right now that we've been around as a brand for um, over a year, it's, it's a lot easier. But I remember in the beginning, it was like painstaking of like, you know, how do we make sure that people walk away feeling, you know, one scene uh, empowered, but there's also that, you know, that je ne sais quoi of of a space where you feel like, I don't even I don't even know how to describe it still, but we would have people come in the clubhouse and cry. And they, you know, only made it a third of the way through. And I'm like, no, no, wait, you have to get to the library. <laughs> you <laughs> you know? haven't even seen the best part. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I don't know what that is still. And a lot of my journey as the founder is trying to get down to what that essence is. You know, what what makes people walk into a space that is decorated beautifully and cry, <laughs> you know, what, how do we take that and, and make that into something much larger? You can set up a cry room in the co-working space. We jokingly have one. Uh, <laughs> it's a wellness studio, but uh, members are able to book it and, and we have had, we, there have been members who cried in there. Crying is a form of wellness. We, uh, totally. And Get we a have good cry we, out. Yeah, totally. Um, so no, we were, we were prepared for that. That's awesome. Did you did you choose private or sacred? We chose private. All sacred right. felt too sacred. <laughs> how that that conversation ended. Yeah, yeah, I see that. All right, good to know. <laughs> so, um, okay, so you built this like immaculate physical space that's extremely thoughtful and detailed, and makes people feel seen and and filled with mirrors, which I love. And and then coronavirus hits, <laughs> and you. How, how long after you opened this space did you did coronavirus hit? Four months. Four months. Wow. Okay, that must have thrown you for a loop. That is putting it lightly, but yes, <laughs> it almost felt like one of those things where the change was so enormous and sort of shifting that it almost circled back to normalcy because it was so unlike anything I could have ever planned. Many people can attest to this, that it just, 
I don't know. I mean, there was almost no reaction. There was really no time for reaction. Um, We sort of got to work in terms of converting it into a digital space. So what has that transition looked like? Well, it's been great. Um, We have actually been operating digitally longer than we were open physically, which I realized this morning and <laughs> mind was blown for a second. So, so it's, it's been, I don't know, it's hard, right? Because we're navigating a global pandemic. It's not something that the company necessarily brought onto ourselves that we are navigating alone. And so there has been this shared feeling of, you know, we are literally as a society going through this thing together. So that's helped in the unknown factor because as a type A perfectionist, I don't do well when I don't have complete control. And this was, you know, a situation where I definitely didn't. Um, So I I really had to lean into another side of myself as a founder that I don't think I would have ever tapped into, to be honest, um, which was relinquishing control and leaning into the fact that we don't know what's next, but we do know what our community needs. And what our community needs is a connection to one another. And they need to know that we are still there uh, in whatever capacity that is. And I don't think, you know, March 12th, when we decided to close the clubhouse and make a digital clubhouse overnight, that we knew exactly what that was. But we've, we've always leaned on the transparency with our members and communicating with them and saying like, you know, we're closing what do you need right now? And that was literally an email we sent out and we got back way too many responses Mm. um, of of members saying, can we have classes? Can there be events? I'd love for there to be some sort of wellness event. You know, I'm, I think like everyone else, I'm going through a lot right now and and want to kind of be in, be in community with one another. And so we did that and we did it with a sense of like, you know, how much more wrong could this go? We're already, you know, the, the first plan already got shut down. So, so let's just sort of lean into this and that digital clubhouse, which again, we launched March 12th, um, is now near 2000 people that live all across the world. And before that, we were so focused on Brooklyn and so focused on New York that when we shifted over to digital programming, we didn't even put the time zones on events because we were so like, we operate in Brooklyn, New York. And mm-hmm. we had a, a member in, in London reach out and say, hi, none of your events have times on them. I live in London. We were like, you live in London? <laughs> like, <laughs> so that, that's been really fun to grow with because again, we were, we were so New York focused that we realized, well, now that we're digital, everyone has Wi-Fi and everyone anywhere in the world can do an event. And so it really opened up the world for us in a really exciting way that I think we needed to hold on to amid all of the anxiety and chaos in, in the early parts of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been going really well. And we're just, I mean, we're in a really strong growth position right now. And now it's just about making sure that we continue to do more for our audience and our community and, and continue growing. Love it. And so the format of the community, you have you have like discussion spaces and then ongoing kind of events and programming that people can join in live. Exactly. So we have three events every weekday and it was three events all of this every day. Yes. <laughs> My goodness. Definitely keeps us busy. Um, How big is your team the, again? We have six people on our team. Wow. We wanted to make sure that we could create a sense of something to hold on to in the beginning of coronavirus. It was almost like nothing. Everything that we thought was on solid ground was not. And, you know, what can one depend on? And so we had three events to kind of anchor down our members' days. The 9 a.m. Eastern Standard event is meant to ground your day. So it's usually something wellness-focused, meditation, breathwork, journaling. Um, An event at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard meant to inspire your day because I'm sure like uh, everyone else, you know, by the second month of stay in place, people were trying all kinds of things to stay busy and, and, and do something new. And so we wanted to add to that narrative and give people workshops and conversation series that uh, would maybe spark some joy. And then a 6 p.m. Eastern Standard event meant to celebrate the end of the day. And it's a combination of uh, conversation series, workshops, and or wellness sessions. Um, so really wanted to show up and, and kind of be something members can depend on so much so that the first day we uh, didn't have a 3 p.m. event, lots of emails. The event's not working. 
I'm like, oh, we, we don't have one today, you know, like <laughs> everyone's in, in disarray. Um, That's a good way to test the engagement of a community is just like blank out one of the programming and just see how many people complain. <laughs> we had about, I think, 12 emails before we were able to send it. <laughs> That's a good sign. Sorry, sorry, sorry. We didn't realize that it was, you know, that you would all sort of fall apart if we didn't do it. <laughs> never ever happen again um but it has not ever happened again that's awesome yeah um did you find it hard to translate the communication around identity to a virtual space because you you have so many tools and artifacts and things you could bring into a physical space i guess like what were the things that you found easier or harder to do in a digital membership yeah, so I actually thought that the self-reflection piece would be difficult, but what I found was that the bar is so low in terms of people of color feeling reflected online that that didn't even matter. All of the, the intentional pieces of the physical space, I'm sure, added to the experience here, but after building out the digital space, I think we could have had an empty white room and it hmm. would have been the same. I think, you know, our audience is, is in such need of connection and, and feeling centered that the little bit that we've, we've been able to offer digitally has been transformative to so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use the word transformative because that's a word I've heard a lot from members who have tweeted or emailed or DM'd us saying that, you know, this has allowed me to hold on during the pandemic. Um, wow. You know, I realized I was so alone until I found, you know, Ethel's Club online. And in my head, I'm like, but this is like, <laughs> you know, you, I wish you could come to the place. Like, you know, this is such a, in my mind, a watered down version, but the need is so great that for so many people, it is so powerful to them, which right. would something I was not expecting. And so it's been the pandemic, but it's also been the kind of resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and this kind of global focus on anti-racism and much like a, a rapidly increasing awareness of, of issues that Black people face, especially in the U.S. What has it been like to have that responsibility in a way of, of hosting a space for people in the Black community through not just a pandemic, but also a highly emotional kind of time with, with the Black Lives Matter movement and the anti-racist movement? Yeah, so I naively did not think that we would receive the response that we did, which was overwhelming almost debilitating in terms of the level of interest we received uh, in that time. For me, it was business as usual. Nothing about my day-to-day business-wise really in any capacity changed. You know, we kept every event that we had on the calendar was still made sense in that time because we've always centered Black lives. We've always centered what it means to be Black and navigating white spaces. What does it mean to be Black and manifest your dreams in spaces that that try to stomp it out of you? What does it mean to be Black and, and deal with colorism and healing and, and a creative and meet? Like, I mean, this is totally our where we've been thriving. And so for us, it was sort of like, well, yeah, kind, kind of moment. Um, and then it's sort of like the moment we said, well, yeah, it was like a, a waterfall of member interest, press, brands, sponsorships. I mean, I have a, a video of, of our Instagram, which just stopped working at one point, just follows. And we were linked to be, you know, in articles next to the NAACP. And it, it was a very surreal moment because mm-hmm. I didn't feel like we were doing anything different or special. You know, it was mm-hmm. something we were always doing. And so that was a really strange moment. And, you know, most of my team identifies as Black. Um, so we sat down in our Monday morning meeting and checked in sort of like we always do. And I said, you know, I want to make space for what's happening. Does anyone want to talk about it? And everyone was sort of like, well, this always happens. You know, this definitely isn't the first time. It's definitely not going to be the last. And we're more focused on providing that space for other Black people who don't have what we have. We feel so privileged and so lucky to have a space to show up and you know, a, a workplace to show up and, and know that 
everyone kind of gets it and think about all the people who don't have that. How do we continue to reach out to them and, and give them space to heal and grieve? And it was a really, you know, proud founder moment of the team that I have to sort of step up and continue to, I mean, we weren't even sleeping during that time, but it felt good in a strange way because we were providing space. We were doing what we have always done now on this, you know, again, global scale. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, it was strange. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the best way I can capture that moment in time. Yeah. Sounds like kind of a profound experience. It's like all the things that you worked on and created and the whole purpose behind creating a dedicated space like this, just like kind of come to a head and come to fruition all at once on like a global scale. Exactly. And everyone in the world is now looking at you. And I hadn't planned on our like big shiny marketing moment to be wrapped in death. You know, that's, that's how it happened. And again, it was just important for us to say like, sorry, I can't do that podcast because we need to be doing an event and I need to be there. Um, And really just stepping into that, into that larger moment. What were some of the spaces you created for your community during that time to help them process and grieve and support each other? So the, the big thing that we did, which we did back in the physical space as well, is that we offered free sessions to anyone in the, the Black community. The one we did in the physical clubhouse was surrounding Kobe Bryant's death. There are a lot of complex feelings around that, and we wanted to just make space for it. So we had one of the practitioners we work with come in and just be on call for about three days. And anyone in, you know, in New York and Brooklyn could book time with her and just take up space to be silent, to cry, to yell, to be, you know, confused. Again, allowing us to unburden ourselves in a space that felt safe. And so with the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, we did the same thing, which again, didn't feel like anything special. I was like, well, of course we, I mean, it wasn't even really a conversation with our team. I, it was just, you know, that's what we do. So we offered free healing and grieving sessions. And that's sort of when everything started to, you know, go a little wild in terms of the, the interest that we had solely because we were stepping up to say, this moment, this moment is again, complex. And we want to provide space for Black people to heal and grieve. And, you know, that that sentence itself is like, you know, revolutionary. People are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe like, this is amazing. This is going to change the world. And I'm like, but we also did this on Wednesday. And then we also did it last Tuesday. Like, this is kind of always what we do. But but anyway, um, we we offered this, the, the free healing and grieving. And we had three sessions in June. And I remember that first session, Everyone just cried the whole time. Mm. There were barely any words spoken. Um, we had three different people, you know, talk to the session. One was a licensed practitioner. I honestly don't remember who the other two people were. It was just people have been in their homes. They, they've not even been close to their own families. And I think there was this need to see, to literally see people who look like you and just take a moment together. And um we made space for that. And I think it was incredibly helpful for people. We actually had one this morning. Um, so we do free events one to two times a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and the event uh, was, was this morning around manifesting the, the future that you want and trying to position um, the, the event around finding joy in this time and, and trying to find, you know, to, to build out your future and what does that look like um, and internally and externally. And same thing, most people just cried the whole time. And I'm like, when are we ever going to get an event where we just talk and then everyone leaves, you know, like, yeah. does that happen for us? Someone tweeted a couple weeks ago that our brand was show up for a Zoom, feel loved, cry real hard, leave. And I was like, I'll take it. That, that feels awesome. <laughs> <laughs> feels real. It's amazing what you've been able to do and, and the space you've been able to create in such a short time that clearly people trust. We, we're kind of joking, but for people to cry in a space that you're hosting means that they have a, a deep sense of emotional safety and security to be able yeah. to kind of release like that in your space. 
Yes. And that is something that we are, is so precious to us. And so we, and this goes back to, um, you know, how do we make sure everyone feels reflected and safe in the way that they can show up and cry if they want to, that they can scream if they want to. And a lot of it is around, you know, the language, the way that we've described the kinds of events. But I also think it's people who've gone to our events, they walk away saying that they felt safe, in which case others do as well. Right. Switching gears a little bit, but, you know, having the background of growth and operations, a lot of community builders don't come from a very business heavy background. They, they were working in, in other kind of very like uh, human centric roles, education, nonprofits, things like that. You come from a you know, deep level of experience with, with growth and operations. What are the things that you've kind of created in your community program and strategy to kind of measure and maintain the, you know, whether it's measuring the health of your community or measuring like the quote unquote success of your community, what do you look at to tell you, to, to give you that kind of insight? Yeah. So I look at a few things. I look at the standard stuff that I think most community builders uh, look at, which are, you know, retention, are people coming back? Are they happy? We lean a lot on high touch. And so we have a community manager named Kyle and another one named Christopher, and they greet every you know, a digital member and they check in and they ask them questions. What do you like? I'd love to refer you to some of the events we have coming up. We, we really try to form a real bond and not sort of like the, how many hurdles do we have to get them through so that their lifetime value goes up and we don't have to acquire them again. Like that is one way of thinking about it. But I think the other way of thinking about it is that they're people and they are looking for something, um, potentially something that they've never found before. And how can we show up and have that intuition that the user has be correct? So in terms of how we like acquire customers and grow, we don't spend any money on marketing. We don't buy ads. We don't, you know, pay for exposure or awareness anywhere. We spend all of our resources and time on our programming, on making really thoughtful, intentional programming where people come and they feel like, you know, even now if we've been Zooming for months, you know, I've never been on a Zoom call like that. Uh, someone said the other day, and this was the most powerful, you know, online event I've ever been to. And, you know, I take those reviews as, you know, that is what I am judging the company by. Mm. If we get you know, reviews that say like, it was fine. We, we are failing because we have told people that when you come into our world, we are going to do such a good job of taking care of you that you won't want to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we base everything around the experience. I believe that with a good experience, none of the other stuff matters because if people feel like you said, emotionally vulnerable, seen, heard, empowered, they're going to want to keep coming back for more. They're going to want to tell their friends. They're going to want to share to the outside world. And it's, it's authentic, right? We didn't buy that level of interest uh, in, the, in the standard way. Uh, that person spent time and, and wanted to come back. And so in terms of growth and experience, I've worked at a lot of companies that are looking at the hard numbers. And yes, I'm looking at them because, you know, I am the founder and I have to be aware of them. But if numbers ever dipped for any reason, the first thing I would look at is the experience of the club, not the onboarding, not the the website. Like none of that matters. It's much more about the retention of the user for us. Also, are, are they having a good time? You know, people can sort of stay and, and not have any affiliation. And, and for us, that deep level of you know, actively using the the online clubhouse and, and coming back for maybe an event and then you come back because you have a question and then you come back to your resource. How do we stimulate more of that? How do we grow that out? Are things that excite me? I never want to look at a Facebook ad ever in my life. I hope that we never have to to get there. Um, I'd much rather have a, a very interesting event that uh, excites people. Right. So it's a combination of the quantitative, like are people coming back, showing up consistently and the qualitative, you know, anecdotal, you know, are people having a positive experience? Do they love it? Do they feel safe? Things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And 
we have a close enough relationship with our members, even though we're close to 2000, around them sharing with us. We have a, my team has a Slack channel called Nice Things. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, the things that, you know, uh, members will send us saying, this was incredible, or I'm so excited I found this. And so we use that, yes, as a metric for sure. It's, it's important. Have you systematized at all how you collect that qualitative feedback? Do you kind of like send a survey after every event or or how are you pulling in those insights in a sustainable way? A lot of it's uh, just coming to us, uh, which is very cool. Um, And we we also send out surveys. When people come onto the online clubhouse and our community managers reach out, they'll often check in with them. Um, just saying, you know, hey, I saw that you were at this event. I want to make sure we're still providing a good experience for you and, and making it much more conversational versus, hey, can you fill out the survey, which we also do, which also brings in good, great information. But there is something about um, people feeling more comfortable about um, sharing in that respect that we like to do. Right. Got it. And, and the revenue for the business comes from paying members? Exactly. Uh, members who uh, pay a monthly fee and we have a couple of partnerships with corporations who pay for their employees to have memberships to our, to our online clubhouse. Very cool. Do people pay monthly or annually? They pay monthly. Okay. So you've pivoted to virtual. You have a, a pretty comprehensive <laughs> event program, three events a day. And, and um, But I know that Ethel's Club and kind of the initial vision has really expanded and you have a, a, a much kind of broader view of where this whole thing you're working on is building. Where, where are you going? What, what, what's happening next? We're listening to our, our members and our audience and we are constantly striving to do more and make more space, give more agency, empower them. And the biggest thing I was noticing also just as a person in the world is that there are communities like Apple's Club, which we do what we do really, really well, but there are also a lot of other communities that center and celebrate people of color that do what they do really, really well, whether it's a book club or for Audre Lorde, um, there's a collective for Black healers, there is a uh, Latinx group of uh, female chefs called Veggie Mijas, et cetera, who do these this great job of centering and celebrating people of color. But the issue is that we're all fragmented and, and spread around. And my thought has always been about creating the most space for people of color. I've never taken the approach of we want to come in and, and be the best and the biggest and eat up everyone else and, and then, you know, become the giant conglomerate that centers and celebrates people of color. Um, we, we much more want it to provide a space. And I think what Ethel's Club does is, is really great. And, and we've, we've gotten really far with it. But I think where my mind has gone is, can there be a platform that has everything that centers and celebrates people of color, whether it's through communities, products, resources, experiences, et cetera. Uh, Because so much of it is is built in, you kind of have to know, you have to follow the right person on Instagram. Um, You have to already be built into the world. And there are so many people of color who haven't even gotten there yet. They're looking for other people of color, so they can't already know about the collectives that exist because they can't find them. Um, so so it just, it's just a different sort of um, problem we've been seeing with people saying, you know, I've been looking for something like this and I, and I could not find it. And I'm like, well, there are other places, you know, why is this so hard? And so we are in the middle of building out a platform that basically exists as a social marketplace uh, designed for people of color to explore and essentially shop for the products and communities and experiences they love all in one place versus trolling on Twitter and Instagram for communities where you might feel reflected. That's amazing. Is it going to be under the Ethel's Club brand or you're creating a new brand for it? You're creating a new brand for it. The new brand is called Somewhere Good with the idea that we are going to take you somewhere good. The idea that people of color are rarely taken somewhere good and and trying to recreate that, or I'm sorry, uh, to shift that that experience of of being online and ha- having to qualify everything. If I were to look up, you know, cooking group for women in Brooklyn, and it was important to me that the women be Black, I'd have to type that in, which is fine. It's just annoying. Why? <laughs> Why does that have to be the way it is? And so we are providing a space where you don't have to do that anymore. You can find all the things that you 
you care about sort of live intentionally around how you're spending your money and, and sort of where it's going and also learn about stuff that is not in your circle or radar because it's incredibly difficult to find. And just trying to put it into one beautiful app on your phone, easy to use. Yeah, that, that's what we're working on now. I love it. Is there a timeline until this is ready for the world? This is the worst question. No, <laughs> Putting you on there, a spot. There is a soon. <laughs> it's the timeline. Um, we just brought on a CTO who's incredible and, and is actually an Apple's Club member a couple of weeks ago. So we've just started off the process. The, the beauty of this product, though, is that we've done a lot of the legwork already. Obviously, we have our own community. So we understand the issues upon finding a new audience and making it feel really relevant and and authentic. So we we understand it from that perspective. But we've also worked with so many talented people since we've started Apple's Club. I mean, we're doing three events per day. That's three different people across the world who are centering and celebrating people of color in in whatever manner. Um, So so a lot of it is just the the platform. We, We have the users you know, we have the audience, we have the communities, we have the, the products and, and, and sort of brands. We clearly know about experiences. The, the biggest issue is that there is no slick tech for any of these communities to use to onboard themselves for an audience to find them. And so we are going to build that. Love it. Well, based on, on your previous timelines, I, I expect that it'll be ready to use in like, in like two weeks. <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> um, no, we. I'd say probably three months before there's a beta version. That's um, fair. I, we could do three months. Okay, I'm good. okay with that. <laughs> and then we'll have to set up our, our next interview for the podcast, and you, you'll update us on how kind of that whole new approach to community, that expansion has gone. I would love that. Just let we'll me know. Check in again. All right. Well, I have a million more questions for you, but we are almost out of time. And so that means we have to move into everyone's favorite part of the podcast, the rapid fire question round. What's your favorite book or, or podcast or newsletter? What's your favorite thing you're learning from right now? My favorite book right now is a book called All About Love by Bill Hooks. I've been reading it for the past, on and off for the past like two months. And it's just been a really good piece of literature to come back to with where the state of the world is and sort of wrap myself in positivity because social media tends to be negative. Um, so, so that is my favorite book right now, All About Love by Bell Hooks. Love it. Great recommendation. I'm going to buy it. Uh, who's an up and coming community builder doing great work right now that you want to give a shout out to? Ooh, hard. I know so many. Um, um, you got to pick um, your favorite one and everyone else will, will judge your choice. No, I'm stressed out. Okay, so <laughs> Britt Chavez of Shop Latinx is mm. an up-and-coming community builder I love right now, mainly because she is such a great founder friend and also is so smart about her business. And I'm personally so excited to see where her company goes. Um, so she would be my up-and-coming community builder right now. Love it. Number three, what's the weirdest community you've ever participated in? Huh. <laughs> What's the weirdest community I've ever participated in? Community <laughs> of of founders on on WhatsApp, and it's solely to talk about the bad things happening in your founder life. Mm. I don't know if that's weird though, or if that's it's just a little weird. A little weird, right? It's like a community focused on negativity, but like in a positive way. Exactly, focused on realness. Like you don't have to put your shiny tweet here. Talk about the, the terrible thing that happened, and we'll more or less help you work out of it. But it's much more about sharing like, eh, today kind of sucked and no one's sort of like, you know. Yeah, like stop being a downer. Exactly. They're just like, yeah, it did suck. Yeah, like my day sucked too. And you're like, yeah, sharing in this community. Wait, I, I want in this community. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I want to complain and be accepted for it. I know. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay, what's your go-to self-care practice? I cook a lot. And if anyone follows me on Twitter, I have probably inundate your feed with my food pictures. It is my like, I can't be on my phone or my computer because I'm doing something complex and I've got the sous vide out and the oven's on and there's fire. So it really forces me to one focus, use my brain a different way, be a little bit creative. And then I get to eat at the end, which is always exciting. So that is my must do every day at 7.30 PM. I close the laptop and I go to my kitchen and cook. 
Love it. Any any favorite cuisines that you, you go to a lot? Like my children, I can't choose one. <laughs> <laughs> like your favorite community builders, you can't choose one. Exactly. I'll let you go on that one. Wait, hold on. I have an answer. I've perfected a grilled cheese. And oh. I say that say this with great like cuisine. I know, but it's 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 like you gotta you have the you the perfect cheese, the right amount of butter, the right bread. I do that a lot, mainly for lunch, because I'm stressed out and it's it's easy and delicious. What's the secret? I'm really gonna, we're gonna this is gonna make the whole podcast worth it if you listen this long. What's the secret to the perfect grilled cheese? The secret is in the temperature, the cheese that you use, because you need it to melt the appropriate amount. If it melts That's too right. much, making a mess, it doesn't melt enough. Nobody wants a half melted grilled cheese. That's terrible. No, no. So a lot of it comes down to the the quality of the cheese. I, I don't use craft singles. Th- those are fine. Mm. But I, I go in a for, pinch. Exactly. I have been known to use them. Um, I'll go for like a, you know, a nice Vermont cheddar or a Gruyere. It melts beautifully. You, you can always go mozzarella. It's like, it doesn't work super well, but it, it melts nicely. Um, and then you want to you know, have the, the, the fire at like a a 2.5 or three, mm. you know, level. And then you want to keep it on both, uh, you know, one side for about four and a half, five minutes and then flip it. And you want to use a nice cut of bread um, where it can really, the butter can soak in and it gets brown. And I just, I'm giving away all, this is my, this is my best secret. <laughs> oh my, yeah. You're really, you're giving us the gold here. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I can't say I expected us to wrap up this podcast talking about grilled cheese, but I'm not upset about it. Here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. (laughs) Okay. Last question. That was not so rapid, but you know, it was worth it. Last question is the easiest one. If it was your last day on earth, you're you're on your deathbed and you had to sum up all of your life's lessons, all all your biggest lessons into one Twitter size message that you're going to share with the rest of the world, with the rest of humanity what would your advice be? My advice would be to listen. And I'm going to leave it vague on purpose. <laughs> but I do think that it is like, you almost need to, like, it is so specific to, to the person. But I think in my case, it was listening to the community around me tell me that they needed this. And then against every, you know, Everything that I should do, I didn't. I should have stayed at my job. I should have been like, that's a cool thing. Someone should build that. Instead, I quit my job and started a company with no real plan because I was listening. And I was listening with such intention that that same, you know, feeling of what those initial Instagram followers, many of who are Ethel's Club members still, um, what they felt translated through to a really, really strong product. And I think when you are navigating the world, there's a lot of noise and you have to kind of figure out what your focus is and and listen and focus it on that as much as possible. I like that answer a lot. Thank you. I don't think that's what I would have said if I hadn't given lots of time, but... <laughs> that's the beauty of it. I think it's something that I'm finding myself saying to myself a lot as the noise becomes louder. You know, we're going to raise capital again. There's lots of signaling in that world. There's now lots of users. There's so many things kind of clawing for my attention. And I'm just like, okay, I have to listen where it's important and not everywhere. Um, so I'm still, you know, it's my lesson to myself, but I also wanted to share it. I love it. I think if everyone followed that advice, this world would be a much better place. I 100% agree with that. <laughs> awesome. Well, Naj, I can't say how much I appreciate you coming here and sharing your experience and your wisdom and all the work that you're doing you know you're relatively new to the world of community building but you you've quickly become a powerhouse and i think a lot of people are recognizing that and uh i was i was talking the other day about how like i think communities are extremely powerful tools for doing anti-racist work and changing the status quo because it gives you an opportunity to kind of create this this bubble in a way of culture uh, that lets you kind of break the mold of of the rest of society and and create a more equitable space, even if other spaces around it are not as equitable. And I think like I can't think of a better example than than Ethel's Club and and the work that you've been doing 
and it's clear the impact that you've already had on so many people in your community and, and, and the lessons that other community builders are learning from you. And I have no doubt that as you expand into somewhere good, that there's going to be a lot of people in your community who are just inspired by what you do and will be the people who start new communities all under that umbrella. And so just super grateful for all the work you're doing and the example you're setting. And thank you. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, I am that that is totally my mission. My mission is just to create space for people to feel like they can build and create their own communities to go out and and do that thing that feels, you know, totally nuts because we're here to kind of back you up and help you and, and kind of get you through that. And so, yes, creating creating equitable spaces, helping people find them, you know, making people of color feel seen. These are the things that drive me. Love it. Awesome. Where can people go to continue to learn from you and follow you online, join your community? Yeah. So if anyone's interested in joining Apples Club, they can go to applesclub.com. You can read all about the events and the the fun things that we do there in the digital clubhouse. I'm mostly on Twitter at Naj Mahal, N-A-J-J Mahal. Um, I made that handle back in... (laughs) Very creative. Yes. And I'm pretty sure Naj Austin's available. And I'm sure <laughs> at some point, but I'm too committed. Uh, but yes, Naj Mahal on Twitter and then Apple's Club is Apple's Club pretty much everywhere online. All right. Well, thank you again. And thanks everybody for listening. We will see you next time. Thank you. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.